few years ago, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker that uh, that I enjoyed. I really I could identify with it. Uh, depicted two very elderly gentlemen, uh, quite old gentlemen, uh, standing on a street in New York City, and uh, one one elderly gentleman said to the other, you know. I'm over 100 years old now. You know, I've had a good life, and I'm really ready to go. I'm ready to die. I actually, you know, this is the, it's time for me to go. But I don't want to give up my rent-stabilized apartment. <laughs> a few years ago, uh, I moved to Europe, uh, as I think everybody here knows, and moved to Berlin, and uh, I gave up my rent-stabilized apartment. I relinquished my rent-stabilized apartment. Uh, and I relinquished most of my material possessions, most of my worldly possessions. A few things I put in a storage area, a couple of things in my friend's attic in New Jersey, but most all of my material possessions I relinquished. And in the days and weeks and months and years that followed as I was living in Berlin and even to this day, uh, there would be times when I would think about those things that I had given up, those material things. Uh, usually it was you know, in moments when I was maybe feeling a little down. It was like, I can't believe I don't have my vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and I would think about different things. You know? it's like, I really wish I still had that full set of Don DeLillo novels, you know, that I've already read, but I just like them on the shelf, just and I would just think of them on the shelf. Yeah. And sometimes I would feel that pain, you know, that pain of separation. We will be separated from all that is dear and appealing to us. To this day, I still think, you know, thoughts will come up about the things that I gave up. And it actually happened, uh, what was it, yesterday? It was two days ago, I think, in one of the sittings. You know, how things come up in the sitting, and I talked about how we think of things, the restless mind. And just kind of out of nowhere, I started thinking about my blender. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was such a great blender. I don't have a blender anymore. You know? And it was like, oh, I used to make smoothies, green mm -hmm. smoothies. And I'm thinking, and I said, yeah, I made them with kale, you know, so I'm going, so, and that knife, oh, the knife, I don't have that knife, that beautiful knife that I got at Bed Bath & Beyond, I used to chop the kale, and then it was like, what else did I make with those smoothies with, it was charred, Swiss, and I was like trying to think of what else, I, you know, what other green vegetable that I used to make, and then it was like, was it just the green, no, it was bananas and strawberries, you know, I could almost taste it as I was meditating. We will be separated from all that is dear and appealing to us. Yeah. My toaster oven. <laughs> <laughs> now, and then, of course, I moved to Berlin, and you know, I accumulated some new stuff. Right? I got a beautiful flat in Prenzlauerberg, and started accumulating some things in Berlin, uh, and uh, I some of the things that I had in my storage area. I decided what I wanted to keep here in New York, and then as I made a few trips back and forth, I brought the stuff back to Berlin, different things, and then I closed down the storage area. Uh, and then I moved back to the States. I moved back to the States uh, in the middle of the pandemic, and when I moved back, I had to relinquish almost all those things that I had in Berlin that I got in Berlin, plus those things that I had brought from the States out of my storage area. So I even had less stuff, you know. And I went to the airport in, in Berlin, and I had uh, four bags, four suitcases. You know, I had two kind of decent-sized suitcases, and then I had one of those little ones that you can kind of put in the overhead compartment. And then I had my, my backpack with my laptop in it. You know, and I went up to the counter, and, uh, you know, woman at the counter was very congenial, and she said, you know, we're, you can only take one bag uh, uh, checked and one 
carry on, you know, and it's going to cost you. And I said, well, I got this other bagel. She goes, oh, that's going to cost you a few extra hundred. And I said, then I got this other one. She goes, oh, that's going to even be, you know, and it was like an astronomical amount of money. She goes, ah, oh, this is going to be so much money. And I said, what am I going to do? These are my, all my worldly possessions. Everything I own in those, this world is in these bags. And she said, you know what? I'm not going to charge you. It's okay. I'm not going to charge you for this stuff. So I came back to the States with my four bags. So I was, I'm, you know, one of the morals to that story, or stories, is, you know, as Dharma students, we learn to travel light. You know, we understand that we don't need a lot of things. We don't need a lot of things. I came to understand that I didn't need a lot of things. We come to understand the burden of things and of conditioned things. As Dharma students, of course, we also come to understand that on our trip to our final destination, they're not going to allow us any luggage. You know, no check bags, nothing in the overhead compartment, no luggage on the trip to the final destination. So as I related, even to this day, I miss some of these things and I feel that pain of separation of these conditioned things, the toaster oven and the blender and the knife and the books and so forth. You know, I miss these things, but I see clearly. I see clearly. It's not something I think about. It's something I know through my practice in my heart uh, that the happiness that these things, these conditioned things, the blender and the toaster oven and the knife, the happiness that comes, that these things offer, is a lesser happiness, is a lesser happiness. I know that it's not a good use of my time, which is limited. My time is limited, as all of our time is in this life. It's not a good use of my time to look for happiness in these kinds of things, these conditioned things. And I know, I know, that there's nothing amongst any of those things that I had to give up, including the rent-stabilized apartment, uh, that I need in order to find the happiness that I'm seeking. True happiness, happiness of heart. None of those things are required. As a Dharma student, I am, we are looking for a happiness that transcends the happiness, happiness of conditioned things. A happiness that transcends the happiness that's subject to birth and death. Those things were all subject to birth and death, as was so clearly and dramatically illustrated to me. You know, the Buddha, the Buddha had a lot more stuff than I had, you know? even in his time, you know? I mean, I had a rent-stabilized apartment in Manhattan. You know, he had palaces, you know? And he said, or he questioned why he was looking for happiness in all these things that were subject to birth and death when he too, as a conditioned being, was subject to birth and death. He said, it wasn't fitting for him to be looking for a happiness in these things that were subject to birth and death, that he should be looking for a greater happiness. So he gave up all of his condition. He gave up a lot more than I gave up in terms of conditioned things, of material things, and sought a greater happiness. It's very important to understand the Buddha's definition of renunciation. It's not about giving things up. It's really more of a trade that we make. Right? We abandon a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. We abandon the happiness that comes from conditioned things for a greater happiness, a happiness that transcends that which is subject to birth and death, a deathless happiness, a true happiness. That's what we mean by true happiness. It's reliable. It's not a happiness that, you know, the person at the counter can say, well, you can't take that, you know, you can't check that, you know. It's a reliable happiness. 
So as Dharma students, we don't look for happiness and condition things, or we don't look so much, right? It's a process of looking less and less for happiness and condition things. And that process is a process that we go through uh, abetted, supported, guided by understanding, right? We understand as we go through this process of being a Dharma student that condition things, material things, the pleasures of the world, the sense pleasures of the world can't bring us uh, a true happiness and that there's a greater happiness than the happiness that comes from the pleasures of the world and conditioned things. We understand these things can't bring a reliable happiness. The Buddha said the things of the world are swept away. They're not satisfactory. He said the world is insatiable. We'll never be satisfied by conditioned things. He said not even if it rained gold coins would we have our fill of conditioned things of material things, of sense experience. So he said it wasn't fitting for him to be looking for happiness in these things. It wasn't, it wasn't fitting because he wasn't making the most of his life. There was a greater happiness that he could come to know as a human being. So we know the Buddha's story. He relinquished all those things, all those things that he had. He decided he was going to live a life in which he was going to try to know a greater happiness. So he followed the spiritual teachers of his time. And what they believed was what the Buddha thought that he should give up these sense pleasures and conditioned things. But they believed that the way to a happiness was practicing denial, self-denial, asceticism. Denial, in other words, of that the problem was pleasure so that all pleasure should be denied. That's what the teachers that he studied with believed, that we should deny ourselves pleasure. So as I talked about the other day, the Buddha followed those paths, and there were several different paths of asceticism and self-denial that he followed for six years, and he didn't find what he was looking for. He didn't find what he was looking for. He didn't find a happiness that transcended the happiness of things that are subject to birth and death. He didn't find true happiness, a true happiness, a reliable happiness. He, didn't, he wasn't able to awaken. One of the things that he saw was that he still had a desire for sense pleasure, and he couldn't shake it despite the attainments that he that he uh, was able to achieve as a spiritual adept in the different levels of concentration that were taught to him and self-denial. He still, he wasn't able to shake the desire for sense pleasure. He was still afflicted with desire for sense pleasure. He was still experiencing dukkha. His, start, his heart was still blocked off. was lived in a place that he called becoming uh, in, in, in the head, in thought worlds. He couldn't stay in the body. The body was in pain. His body was in pain. He couldn't stay in his body. So he was in thought worlds, and he couldn't stay in his body. He couldn't be connected to his heart, and he couldn't awaken. So what he realized was he needed pleasure. He needed pleasure. The body had to feel good if he was going to be able to stay in the body and stay in the present moment and be connected to the heart. He needed to be able to have a pleasurable abiding. He realized that the state of pleasure was the most favorable state. And he had an insight. And this was the insight that he had as he sat under the rose apple, uh, when, as he as he sat by the river and remembered a time when he was a child, when he sat, he was sitting under an apple tree, a rose apple tree, and his father was working in the field, and he experienced, as we, many of us did, and perhaps we remember that, a certain pleasure in his body that wasn't dependent on anything external. He wasn't eating anything or looking at his iPhone or anything like that uh, as, as, a, as a child. Uh, he just experienced this pleasure 
in the body that wasn't dependent on anything external. An internal pleasure that was akin to what he called jhana, uh, PT and sukha within the body. A pleasure not dependent on external things. And what he realized was there's two kinds of pleasure. There's two kinds of pleasure. There's a pleasure that comes from external experiences, like food or smoothies or playing with a blender or looking at the iPhone or fill in the blank, all these external experiences, sense pleasures. And there's a pleasure that's internal, that's not dependent on anything that's external. It's not dependent on uh, anything outside of the body. So it's, it's highly reliable, if not completely reliable, this pleasure. And we're not, we don't have to com continual, continually replenish it, continuing to get, to get, to get, which causes so much suffering in terms of looking for happiness in external things which are subject to birth and death. And we have to continually replenish our supply of them. So he realized there was a, a, an unskillful pleasure a pleasure that was dependent on external things that was conducive to suffering. It conduced to suffering. If we look for happiness in external things, external pleasures will suffer. And he realized there was a skillful pleasure that wasn't dependent on anything outside of the body, it was internal, and that it actually was conducive to awakening. That if he was able to develop that state and maintain it, he could awaken and that actually it was necessary for awakening. He realized the path must include pleasure. It must include this internal pleasure. This is what's meant by the middle path. This is the middle path. It's a path, it's not a path of external sense pleasure, and it's not a path of denial of pleasure. It's a path of pleasure, but internal pleasure, wholesome pleasure, skillful pleasure. This pleasure inside that the Buddha recollected as he thought about that time when he was a child and he was sitting under the rose apple tree. He realized that this was a pleasure that was innate within all of us, that was latent within all of us, that we could develop within all of us, that we all had this capacity to develop this internal pleasure and that we could develop it through concentration practice, mindfulness of breathing. We could develop this quality of pleasure that he called jhana. He described it like this. Uh, he said, there is the case where the monk enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Hopefully that sounds familiar. Uh, he permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Withdrawal, he means withdrawal from sense pleasures, withdrawal from the hindrances. So what the Buddha realized was that it's very important how the body feels. It's very important how the body feels. And this is really the message of this talk tonight, that it's very important how the body feels. This is why Vedana, feeling tone, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of how the body feels is so essential to the Buddha's path because it's so important how the body feels. The body could feel pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. If it feels pleasant, we'll be able to awaken. If it feels unpleasant, when even neutral, it's going to be pretty hard for us to awaken and experience happiness in this life. The way the body feels is important. The body needs to feel good. The body needs to feel good. And of course, the body doesn't feel good when we're looking for happiness and external sense pleasure. It actually, the body is in pain when we're looking for happiness and external sense pleasure the pain of grasping after it again and again and again. So feeling tone is very important. The way the body feels is very important. We have to learn as Dharma students to ask and to ask and to ask, how is the body? How is the heart? 
How is the body? How is the heart? How is the body? How is the body today? How is the body right now? This is an, an essential question that we learn to ask. So we cultivate jhana uh, by abandoning our preoccupation with external sense pleasure. That's essential. That's essential. Uh, you know, the monks go to a great length to do that. As householders, not quite as much. On a retreat, kind of a lot. You know, uh, As householders, it's a challenge for us. Uh, the challenge is to be able to answer the question, how much do I need? You know, how much do I really need? And not to be preoccupied with external sense pleasure. Or the way I like to think about it is not to be looking for happiness in external sense pleasure. Not to be looking for, not to put all of our efforts into looking for happiness in external sense pleasure at the, at the expense of looking for happiness in something greater. So external sense pleasure, the pl external pleasures of food and entertainment, and se etc., uh, bring a temporary happiness, a temporary pleasure, but ultimately they lead to suffering. You know, because they're subject to birth and death, because they conduce to craving. You know? You know, we will never get our fill of them. And because of that, if we look for happiness, uh, we'll always be in this process of getting and get, wanting to get more of birth and death. There's the birth of an experience of an external sense pleasure passes, and we're in this constant process of samsara. And that, of course, brings about dukkha. The heart is blocked. Our capacity for wisdom and love and compassion is blocked if we're looking for happiness and the pleasures of the world. So in cultivating jhana, we're abandoning our search for happiness uh, and pleasure in external sources, right? That's what we're doing here to a large extent, right? And that's why giving up the phone is so important. I mean, even monks can't do it completely, right? Because they have to eat. So, you know, having to eat uh, and having to take in food is uh, going to cause some suffering. There's an inherent suffering in food, in food, in taking in food. But, you know, it's suffering that we can learn to, to navigate in, in a way so that it won't prevent us from true happiness. I mean, I don't want anybody to, you know, I mean, it, it's always a very tricky thing, right? You know, I don't want anybody to, you know, go on a hunger diet on the retreat or say, you know, not enjoy the delicious food, you know? Uh, but I mean, just on this, the, the most basic level, you know, you eat some food, right? You have breakfast, you know, and then, you know, about 11.30, you start to feel hungry again, right? And it's painful. It's like, I need more of this food to alleviate this pain, you know? So you eat a little bit more of that food, and then, you know, at about 4 o'clock, you start to feel hungry again, you know? And then you have to alleviate that pain by eating more food. I mean, it's necessary to stay alive, but it, it's, un, it's an un, inherently unsatisfactory experience, having to take in food. So what we try to do is ask, how much do I need? Uh, you know, the term in Buddhism is requisites, what's required, and trying not to take in too much more than what's required. And to work skillfully with you know, the pain that comes from uh, that process of feeding, of feeding, so that it doesn't interfere with our awakening. And then we learn to replace that pleasure that comes from food and other external food sources with internal pleasure, with jhana, which is a much, you know, and it takes time to understand this, but it's a much more satisfactory pleasure. It's a much more satisfactory pleasure 
I mean, you know, it takes time to understand this, and you have to really learn to develop jhana and maintain it, and concentration to maintain it. But to me, it's much more appealing than anything that you could put on a plate in front of me, you know, that I have to salt and pepper, you know? It's, I mean, it's not, it's not even comparable. But we learn to see this and understand this. So in this cultivating jhana, uh, we learn to see what the body is like. We learn to abandon the dis-ease in the body and replace it with ease. This is a skill that we can all develop. It starts with the breath, right? It starts with the breath. We look at the breath and we see the dis-ease in the breath and we replace it with ease. Right? That's the whole teaching right there. If you can do that with the breath, you can do that with everything else in terms of your experience of the body and feeling tone. You see dis-ease in the breath, you learn to replace it with ease. If that's Ajahn Lee in the mango, right? You, know, you see the bad spots and you eat the good spots. You eat the good spots. I thought on a Sunday night on a retreat, a little Ajahn Lee is always called for. Ajahn Lee, the body is like a tree. No tree is entirely perfect. At any one time, it'll have new leaves and old leaves, green leaves and yellow, fresh leaves and dry. The dry leaves will fall away, while those that are fresh will slowly dry out and fall away later. Some of the branches are long, some thick, some small. The fruits aren't evenly distributed. The human body isn't really much different from this. Pleasure and pain aren't evenly distributed. The parts that ache and those that are, uncom are comfortable are randomly mixed. You can't rely on it. So do your best to keep the comfortable parts comfortable. Don't worry about the parts that you can't make comfortable. It's like going into a house where the floorboards are beginning to rot. If you want to sit down, don't choose a rotten spot. Choose a spot where the boards are still sound. Or you can compare the body to a mango. If a mango has a rotten or a wormy spot, take a knife and cut it out. Just eat the good part remaining. If you're foolish enough to eat the wormy part, you're in for trouble. Your body is the same, and not just the body, the mind too. It doesn't always go as you'd like it to. Sometimes it's in a good mood, sometimes it's not. This is where you have to use as much directed thought and evaluation as possible. So the body, we see where there's disease, and we cultivate ease. We learn to spread ease through the body. Ajahn Lee was a master of spreading, of spreading ease throughout the body. Retreats are a great place. I mean, it's really, it's one of the reasons people say, well, why should I do retreats? Well, there's a lot of reasons. A lot of these skills, you know, we have eight days to practice these skills. A lot of these skills, like spreading, and cultivating a full body awareness and an easeful abiding in the body are, are skills that I learned largely on retreat. Well, let me try this, let me try that, let me move the energy this way, let me feel this part of the body, let me get to know this part of the body. The two main skills, just like Ajahn Lee, are directed thought and evaluation. Directed thought, we put the mind on the breath in the body, evaluation. How does the breath feel? How does the body feel? Are there unpleasant sensations? Is there dis-ease? Are there pleasant sensations? Ease. We replace the dis-ease with the ease. We replace the dis-ease with the ease. So we learn to cultivate in meditation practice this easeful and pleasurable abiding and then we learn to maintain it in all postures. This is really the, the culminating mark of jhana, you know, that you can maintain an easeful and pleasurable abiding in all postures. So Ajahn Lee said, establish the breath in the body in an easeful and pleasurable abiding and learn to maintain it. So as we go through our days, we're mindful of body and we're mindful of how the body feels. This is, our, this is our charge, this is our task as Dharma students. As we go through our days, we're mindful of the body and we're mindful of how the body feels. We practice directed thought and evaluation of the body as we go throughout our days. What's the feeling tone of the body? 
that's going to largely depend, uh, determine your capacity to awaken. If you can learn to go through the, the day and the body is in an easeful and pleasurable abiding, you have a pretty good chance to find a greater happiness in life. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? If you're going through the day and your body is in a state of disease and it doesn't feel good, how the heck are you going to find true happiness? You're in no position to find true happiness. That's what the Buddha realized. His body felt lousy when he was practicing asceticism. He needed to get his body to feel really good so he could do what he needed to do to awaken. Walking meditation is a good bridge to daily life. You know, so on the walking, you know, we can cultivate mindfulness of breath and body, but also can we connect to an easeful breath? Uh, can we connect and call up an easeful and pleasurable abiding in the body? So we want to practice on retreat, walking easefully, having a pleasurable abiding when we're doing our walking meditation. It's a practice. It's a training. This is something that's eminently doable. Everybody here can do this. Everybody here can do this. You know, I mean, really, the, the, the kind of the reason for the Dharma talk is, is A, to encourage you to do it, uh, B, to encourage you to do it, and, and in that encouragement, uh, you're, you're encouraged to do it because you understand why it's so important, right? It's so important to do this, right? Because it's, otherwise it's just like, oh, it's I have a pleasurable abiding, so what? Well, this is how you awaken. This is how you awaken. I'm telling you, this is how you awaken. If you have a pleasurable abiding in all postures as you go through all your day, and this is something that's eminently doable. The biggest problem is, is that people don't understand how important it is. Because who the hell is teaching it? How would they understand? How could they understand? That's why these teachings are so important. That's why we have these retreats. So our practice is to maintain an easeful and pleasurable abiding in the world. You know, it was interesting, you know, when I was in Berlin, uh, and, since, and since, I, since I gave up everything, you know, uh, you know, it's really made me look much more inside. Because I didn't have all these pleasures, you know? So I had to, I, you know, I was kind of forced to look inside for pleasure. I mean, the retreat's kind of like that, right? It's like I don't have the phone and the, and the iPad and the, this, and, you know, I got a couple of meals a day, but, you know, all these other pleasures that I'm usually accustomed to aren't there. Well, you know, maybe I'll, I got to find something. Let me look inside. You know, I would see this a lot when I, when I would go to Wat Metta, you know, where, where there's a lot of renunciation. One meal a day, some of you have been there, you know, several of you have been there. You know, one meal a day, much more renunciation than, than on a retreat like this. This is like, you know, this is like Las Vegas compared to Wat Metta. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it would really, I would really be forced to look inside, to look inside, to find a pleasure inside. Then the problem was, you know, I'd be at White Meta for two, three, four weeks. I'd go back to my rent-stabilized apartment with the shelf, with the books, and the, and the blender, and the smoothies, and the knife, and it was like, oh, this is good. This is easier. It's easier. Yeah. So as a Dharma student, we look inside. We look inside for pleasure. We look inside for pleasure. Buddha's great description of the Dhamma student from the Dhammapada, how very happily we live, we who have nothing, we will feed on rapture like the radiant gods. We who have nothing, we could translate, literate that, how very happily we live, we who don't have a rent-stabilized apartment or a blender or a toaster oven anymore, we will feed on rapture like the radiant gods. So our question, you know, the question that this Dharma talk invites you to pose as you go through your days on retreat and beyond, how is the body? 
How is the body as we go through our days? Is there dis-ease in the body? Now, you know, as we go through our days, and we can talk about off the cushion, you know, on the cushion, walking meditation, off the cushion, on the retreat, back home, uh, you know, we may notice blatant experiences of disease, pain, for instance, strong pain, which is good, and we need to notice that and learn to work with it skillfully, as we talked about this morning, right? We also want to learn to be mindful of the more subtle experiences of disease that we experience, although we may not realize that we're experiencing as we go through the course of our days. So seeing how the body is, how's the body disposed as you go through the course of your day? Is there tightness in the body? Is there contraction? Are you holding? Is there physical stress in the body? You want to be doing that as you, that's evaluation. You want to be doing that. First, you have to be mindful of the body, and then as you go through your day, you're paying attention to how the body is disposed. It's like right now. How's the body right now? Is there any tightness? Is there any tension in the body? Can you replace that with ease? That's our practice, right? So as we go through our days, we're, we're, we're mindful of the body and how the body feels, and we're noticing movements of tightness, stress, disease. So people think about Vedana, they think it's pain. Oh, my knee is killing me or something like that. It's how, it's the tone of the body. Is the body in a pleasant state or is there unpleasant sensation in the body? Can you see that? Can you get some space from it? Can you replace that with easeful sensation, pleasant sensation? Being sensitive being sensitive to what the body is like, to dis-ease and replacing it with ease. And, you know, ease is something that we have a capacity for that, you know, we just don't acknowledge or don't understand uh, our capacity for ease. I mean, ease is an, uh, an element of our goodness. We all have this capacity for ease. You know, we, we develop it in the breath meditation we develop this capacity, we come to know this quality of ease in meditation and walking meditation. But it's, but it's a capacity that we have. I mean, I always see this so profoundly uh, in working with new students, right? Uh, new students, and it's always interesting, and you know, this is one of those, these things you just can't see on Zoom, you know? But, you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty, I mean, I don't think it, it takes any great, you know, telepathic skills. I'm usually pretty good at, like, you know, new students come in to, to meditate, you know, and they're so tight and stiff, a lot of them, most of them. You know, and you, they're just, you know, and I, I see that tightness and tension, right, in the body, you know. And, and, and it's not because they're taking my class, you know. It's like this is how they've been all their lives, Right. You know, and, and the first couple of weeks in the class, they're meditating like, like this, you know, and they're like, you know, I'm gonna meditate like that, and they're really tight and tense, you know. And they're usually in the third class, and they're moving, right? They're moving, they're agitated. The body is agitated, it's so agitated, and they're moving to try to, try to alleviate some of this agitation in the body, right? So in the third class, I usually say, just try being still. You have a capacity for stillness, just be still, don't move. And then all of a sudden, I'll look up five minutes into the meditation. Everybody's still sitting there like a Buddha, still, connected to a stillness inside. And it's like, oh my God. You know, it's like you have this capacity for stillness. You know, and then when I teach the steps of breath meditation, you know, and people will be tight and tense. And then as we start to get into the steps, and after two or three weeks, and all of a sudden, you know, after three, four weeks, and we've worked with step three in the body. And people are just like, in, they're just, I mean, every, their, their whole physical structure has changed over the, over the course of a few weeks in their meditation. It's like, it's all right there. It's all right there. That capacity is right there for stillness, for ease, for pleasure. Michelle McDonald uh, talked about her a little bit on this retreat. Uh, she studied with uh, Upandita. In, Thailand, in Burma, and uh, 
Upandita, she talks about how Upandita would say, find your inner gracefulness, be graceful. When you, when you do your walking meditation, find that inner ease, your capacity for inner gracefulness and walk easily. And as you walk you know, through, the, through the monastery, you know, find that inner gracefulness. And she said, I told them, I said, I'm not graceful. I'm not graceful, Upandita. You know? He said, of course you are. You, know? it's like you just have to find that within yourself. This is something the Ajans speak to so much, you know. And if you if you've had the the, the the great fortune of knowing the Ajans or being in their company, you see how at ease they are and how they move with grace. This is one of the things in my own practice and being at the monastery and working with Tan Jeff that he's really tried to emphasize with me, you know, is is, is find that inner uh, ease. Uh, learn to be able to kind of be in tune with your inner dharma uh, and that quality of ease. Uh, uh, you know, and, and his thing with me is like, you know, you're mechanical. You're a little too mechanical in your practice and in your life, you know? And, you know, this quality that we learn to connect to that puts us in tune in the Buddhist teaching is known as internal assurance. You know, this quality of internal assurance. You'd say you have to have internal assurance. Just find that inner ease. It's like I want, do I move my arm this way to have ease? And do I do this? And do I scan this way? And do I feel the breath? He says, no, you just, you just, just connect to that inner quality. Have, in, have internal assurance. He would say, just plunge. Plunge into the meditation. Well, how do I plunge? Do I do it this way or do I do it that way? <laughs> This is kind of like, you know, and I think it's true with a lot of us, you know, we're kind of, be, we're in the head. And, you know, for me, there's like this hesitancy. You know, there's this hesitancy in cultivating ease. There's hesitancy in meditation. There's hesitancy in life. And a lack of trust, right? A lack of inner trust, inner assurance. This is something, you know, I talked about this, I talked about my athletic feats last night. But this is something my high school soccer coach used to work with me on, interestingly enough. You know, and he, and he would say, and he would say, you, you, you're tentative, you know? I mean, it's, you know, it might be a subtle thing if you weren't like a really good coach, like, you know, but he was so spot on, you know? I mean, you're tentative, you know, you're tentative. You have to learn to trust yourself, you know, trust in your ability. But I was always a little tentative, you know, there was always a little hesitancy. We all have this capacity to be in tune, to be connected to our inner grace and our inner ease. We have this capacity to tune in, just like, as I said last night, you know, the Buddha used this idea of tuning in and being in tune, uh, being coming from a musician family. You know, like a, a good musician can uh, connect to being in tune, right? Uh, you know, you, you have a good ear and you know when you're out of tune and you, and you put yourself in tune. You know, we all have that capacity as Dharma students and as human beings in terms of our ability to connect into our internal ease and gracefulness. You know, that's part of our knowing quality. That's part of the one who knows, the term that Ajahn Chah uses. So we, we, we're learning to connect to that. Just like on the soccer field, I had to learn to, uh, to trust in my ability. Trust in my ability, right? Trust in my ability. You know, we're learning to trust in our inner capacity for ease and grace. You know, sometimes the term they use in psychology is flow, right? The flow state. You know, the idea in psychology is often that try to find things to do that enable you to be in a flow state. In Buddhism, it's kind of backward, the other way around. It's like learn how to be in a flow state and bring that into all of your activities, all of your postures. Now, of course, if there's things in life in which you've been in a flow state in, that can help you understand what that is. And you can apply that if it's music or art or soccer or whatever it is. You can learn to apply what you've learned in other skills when you've, when you've gotten into a flow state.
So notice this tightness, this stress, this dis-ease in the body. Another aspect of Vedana that's extremely useful and important to notice is the dis-ease in the body, the unpleasant sensations uh, that are the result of some kind of an emotional state, an emotional state that manifests as form, as all emotional states do, in the body. So for instance, like an emotional state like anxiety has a feeling tone that's unpleasant. It doesn't feel good. So this is something I would work with a lot as I go through my day. How does the body feel? Oh, there's this knot in the body or this stress in the body, you know, it's some kind of anxiety. But I work with it as a feeling tone. It's unpleasant. There's this quality, this unpleasant sensation in the body of anxiety. All right, I see that. And getting a little space from that, it softens, right? And then I replace that with ease, with ease. It's good because I don't even have to analyze why I'm so fucked up, you know? It's just like, it's unpleasant, replace it with ease. You know, I, I mean, there's time for that other stuff later, but, you know, uh, so, you know, or there's emotional stress. Sometimes I'm just in an emotional knot, you know? But the issue is really, that the issue at hand is it's unpleasant. I don't like the way that it feels, and it's making me suffer, and my heart's blocked off because it feels unpleasant, and I don't like it. And the disliking, that is block that dukkha is blocking the heart. So just notice, okay, the body is in an unpleasant state. Get some space from that, and find something that feels good, and then maybe even spread. It's, it's pretty, you know. The interesting thing is, like, you know, that that sensation is unpleasant. The problem is we don't notice it. You know, once you notice it, it's not that hard to get space from it and cultivate ease. It's a lot easier than like if you sprained your ankle. So practice seeing those unpleasant, uh, the unpleasant feeling tone of different emotional states like anxiety. Be aware and replace it with ease. See how the body is disposed. See what the body feels like. Pay attention. How is the body? See dis-ease, replace it with ease. Eat the good parts of the mango. You know, when I was when I was in Berlin, I really began to start to see how my mind was looking more in, more in, more in, and it was looking for pleasure inside, and not so much outside. It was looking in. It was looking in. And it was a different. It took time. You know, it takes time to get to that point. But gradually, the mind inclines into the pleasure within. Most of our minds are inclining out to the pleasure of the food or the iPhone or whatever. But gradually, we start to incline more in. And it was a real realization. I remember coming off the the tram. I think it was the Amines at Shonhazar Ali, and uh, just seeing that. You know, I was walking down walking down the Castellanale, and I noticed you know, all these stores and shops, and the mind was looking in for pleasure, was looking in for pleasure. You know, and there was a pleasure inside, and the mind was inclining in. You know? And that put me in better position to meet the experience of what was on the street, with ease, with space, with the heart. So this pleasurable abiding ultimately puts us in position to know true happiness. Puts us in position to know true happiness. I mean, in and of itself, there's a happiness, the happiness of concentration. The ease in and of itself is extraordinarily beneficial. Most of us go through the day in a state of disease to some extent that's exacerbated by looking for happiness in external sense experience. But ultimately, this pleasurable abiding puts us in position to know true happiness. This is what the Buddha realized. When he had this pleasurable abiding, he could develop wisdom and find release from dukkha and find freedom. I like to say it's the most favorable state. The neuroscientist Antonio Damasio says that when the body is in a state of internal pleasure, we, the organism can thrive. It thrives when there's pleasure in the body. We're in position to make the most of life. We're able to be in the heart, right? Now, as the Thai Ajahn say, I think I alluded to this last night, 
The more we are in the body, the more we're in the body, the more we're in the body, awareness converges at the heart, at the chitta. And we're trying to get into the body more, and the way that we do that is make the body uh, hospitable, abiding, a place where we want to be. The more pleasurable our internal experience is, the more the mind wants to be in the body, the more we're in the body, the more our awareness converges right at the chitta right at the knowing quality. And we live from there, from the heart. Metaphor that's used in, in the Dharma tradition is uh, the metaphor of a bird in a cage. You know, did anybody ever had a, have a little, like my sister had a parakeet, you know, it was in a cage. You know, a little blue parakeet, you know. Uh, if you have that parakeet is on the door of the cage, and you open the door, the parakeet can fly out. If the parakeet is perched somewhere else in the cage and you open the door, it's not going to be able to fly out in time. So when we're grasping after the pleasures of the world, the pleasures that the blender and the rent-stabilized apartment can bring, you know, when we're looking for happiness in things that are external to the body, it's like we're clinging, and we're clinging to the walls of the cage. And when the door opens, we ain't getting out. When we cultivate silk, so our practice is to cultivate skillful pleasure, to allow ourselves to be immersed, immersed. The metaphor the Buddha uses for pleasure is like a lotus flower immersed in water. Allow yourself to be immersed, immersed in pleasure in all postures as you go through your days. Some people say, oh, you're clinging, you're clinging. You're clinging, you know. You might say that, you know. This is what they said to the Buddha. This is good clinging. This is good clinging. This is the clinging that we want to do. You know, we have to cling somewhere until we no longer have to cling. That's, when, you know, you're not going to give up clinging completely until you're fully awakened. Until then, you cling in places that are good. This is where to cling. When we're clinging, if you want to call it clinging, to the sense pleasure, the pleasure in the body, this internal pleasure, it's like we're clinging to the doors of the cage, which are the doors to the deathless. And when the door opens, we're in position. We can fly. We can fly. So we seek the happiness, the pleasure of jhana. We maintain ourselves in a pleasurable abiding so that we can stay close to the heart in position to know happiness of heart. This is our path. So let's just close our eyes for a second.